The scripture reading for today will come from 2 Kings chapter 25, verses 8 through 21. And it reads, And in the fifth month, of the, on the seventh day of the month, on the month, which was the 19th year of King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, the captain of the guard, a servant of the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem. He burned the house of the Lord and the king's house. All the houses of Jerusalem, that is, all the houses of the great, he burned with fire. And all the army of the Chaldeans, who were with the captain of the guard, broke down the walls of Jerusalem all around. Then Nebuchadnezzar, the captain of the guard, carried away captive the rest of the people who remained in the city, and the defectors who had deserted to the king of Babylon with the rest of the multitude. But the captain of the guard left some of the poor of the land as vine dressers and farmers, the bronze pillars that were in the house of the Lord and the carts, and the bronze sea that were in the house of the Lord. The Chaldean broke in pieces and carried their bronze to Babylon. They also took away the pots, the shovels, the tremors, the spoons, and all the bronze utensils which the priests ministered. The firepans and the basins, the things of solid gold and solid silver, the captain of the guard took away. The two pillars, one, one guard took away. The two pillars, one sea, and the carts, which Solomon had made for the house of the Lord, the bronze and all these articles, was, met, was beyond measure. The height of one pillar was 18 cubits, and the captain of it was of bronze. The height of the capital was three cubits, and the network and pomegranates all around the capital were all of bronze. The second pillar was the same with a network. And the captain of the guard took the Sarai, the chief priest, Zephaniah, the second priest, and the, and the three doorkeepers. He also took out of the city an officer who had, who had charge of the men of war, five men of the king's close associates who were found in the city, the chief recruiting officer of the army who mustered the people of the land, and 60 men of the people of the land who were found in the city. So Nebuchadnezzar, captain of the guard, took these and brought them to the king of Babylon and Riblah. Then the king of Babylon struck them and put them to death at Riblah, in the land of Hamath. Thus Judah was carried away captive from its own land. Thanks for that reading, brother. And uh, good morning, everybody. So, so great to be here. Um, for those of you I have not had a chance to meet, my name is Greg Anderson. I live in College Station, Texas. It's great to be back here uh, with um, my brothers and sisters in Mesa this morning. I've had several folks ask me, so how's it going in Mesa? And I said, I've never had a warmer welcome anywhere that I've ever been. Literally, I've never had a warmer welcome anywhere that I've ever been. So thank you all for that. Uh, I'm adjusting. I'm learning. I'm learning to sip water all the time. That's a new thing for me. I've never thought about that. But it's weird when you don't and you start to get dizzy. Isn't that, isn't that wild? Isn't that wild how our bodies are fearfully and wonderfully made? So uh, streams of living water is taking on a whole new meaning for me uh, in, this, uh, in this space as I'm spending time with you here. And so encouraged by all of the new songs that you're learning, that's just fantastic. I'm a singer. I grew up in a singing family. Uh, for those of you who are not really familiar with Churches of Christ, maybe you've come our way from another fellowship, or maybe you're just kind of new to the whole church uh, scene. We are, a, as a fellowship, we just love to sing. We didn't invent four-part harmony, but we did kind of perfect it. Uh, and so you may wonder about what's up with all of these notes and these different parts and pieces, and it's just something that's a little bit unique to our, our tribe uh, and, and can be such a blessing if you'll just give yourself a little opportunity to learn and grow and let these songs be written on your hearts as they've been written uh, on the hearts of generations for many, many decades uh, past. Well, I want to start with a question this morning, and it, it may be a little bit heavy in some ways, but I just want to ask, 
Has anybody ever been disappointed? All right. All right. Sounds like uh, yes. I, I'm not really talking about like, oh, I just missed my exit. Disappointed. I'm talking about deeply. Have you ever been deeply disappointed? Uh, it's kind of that almost a kick in the gut kind of disappointment. Uh, the, the kind where maybe somebody you put your trust in, yeah, they just, oh, they just rip your, rip your heart out and the pain is just so overwhelming that really all you can just do is just sit and maybe just cry and maybe even just for days. Anybody, anybody ever experienced that kind of disappointment? Have you ever, have you ever had an expectation that had you on the edge of your seat. You were so hoping you would get the job offer. You were praying for the marriage proposal. Maybe praying that the, 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 the news you were about to get from your doctor, the treatment plan is working. Have you ever had an expectation like one of those and instead of getting the news you hoped to hear, you get the exact opposite and you're just so devastated it's like you can't even eat have you ever been part of something that at one time was solid and it was secure a church for instance where expectations were clear and people were committed they were all in and God was moving in very powerful ways only to later see people become self-absorbed consumers who start using the pronoun I more than the pronoun we. And you just find yourself on your knees in prayer and you're crying out to God to, Lord, restore that which Satan has has torn down. Have you, have you ever been in a situation like that? Well, if, if these scenarios or anything remotely close to these scenarios sounds familiar, then I want you to know that there is a book in the Bible that tells the story of a man who was deeply disappointed who experienced the full weight of broken expectations and who witnessed firsthand what happens when a community of faith becomes consumeristic. Yet through it all, this man never wavers in his commitment to God. And the book and the man share the same name. It's Nehemiah. And over the next several weeks, we're going to be studying both the book and the man with hopes of being inspired by the Word of God and the faithfulness of one of His servants, inspired in a way that hopefully and prayerfully moves us to action as a community of faith here. And we live into this interim season and focus on being a church that lives into that which, spiritually speaking, often around us lies in chaos and in disarray. So we begin today by studying the background of Nehemiah, and to do that we need to understand the context. And so if you're new to the Bible, Nehemiah is the 16th book 
in the Old Testament. It's just after the book of Ezra. And you can pull it up on your phone. Just launch an app like BibleGateway.com. And I think in your pews there are Bibles, right? Some uh, new international version Bibles. And so um, if you don't have a Bible, I don't want you to be embarrassed. Every single person in this room got their first Bible at some point, right? So if you don't have a Bible, those Bibles in the pew, that's a gift to you. So please feel free to take one of those and uh, take it home with you. Or if you don't see one close by, let someone know. And I can almost assure you that person will probably take you to the store and help you buy your first Bible, okay? So uh, let's all make sure that we're trying to be in the Word and studying the Word, particularly over these next several weeks, reading daily from the book of Nehemiah. So at one time, the uh, two books, Ezra and Nehemiah, at one time, um, those were one book. It was the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. And in 587, as we just read a few moments ago before the sermon, the Babylonians destroyed uh, Jerusalem, and they destroyed the temple, and they took many Israelites into exile. And so about 50 or so years pass, and then Ezra and Nehemiah re-engage the story of Israel, and those books report what happens as some in captivity begin to radically reassess Israel's identity. And Israel's relationship to God as they begin slowly but surely to return back to Jerusalem and engage some who were left there, some of the remnant who'd been there the entire time. So Ezra and Nehemiah features three key leaders. We have a guy called Zerubbabel. Most of us don't really know a whole lot about him, but if you want to know more about him, go to the book of Ezra and read chapters 1 through 6. We are also introduced to Ezra in the book of Ezra, chapters 7 through 10, and we meet Nehemiah and particularly hear his story in the book of Nehemiah, chapters 1 through 7. So Zerubbabel, and this is fascinating how this plays out, three different individuals, but three basically identical trajectories. Zerubbabel leads the rebuilding of the temple. Ezra leads the rebuilding of community through uh, reinstituting or reinstating the law of Moses. And Nehemiah leads the rebuilding of the city walls. And you can see the dates on screen when those individuals lived as best we can discern. I love this quote by Mark Thronbelt. He says, All three successfully completed their missions despite opposition, and for all three, the completion of their task was marked by a great assembly. And as we get to the end of the story of Nehemiah, we'll see that uh, in a few, uh, a few weeks from now. Uh, so we have Zerubbabel, we have Ezra, we have Nehemiah. And I want you to notice something that happens here. Again, parallels for all three, three progressions. Uh, first, they return to Jerusalem under divinely prompted authority of the Persian uh, crown. These are the same Babylonians who took Israel into captivity, okay? They experience consistent opposition to their divine calling. Uh, And they ultimately gain victory over opposition with divine aid. Now, I want you to look at that screen, and do you notice three words that pop? The word divine. 
right? Each progression is divinely initiated or divinely ordained. God is ultimately involved. And so here's something I want us to think about as we start with this initial lesson, and that is the books of Ezra and Nehemiah are not so much about what men did for God. They are books about what God does through Ezra Nehemiah, and others to position God's people and those around them to find courage and to live for God's purposes. And we're going to have a lot more to say about that as this series progresses. So for this morning, let's just turn our attention to the book of Nehemiah. And let's examine these opening verses of chapter 1. So you can follow along in your own Bible if you would like, or you can follow along The verses will be on screen. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa. Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. And they said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I just sat down and wept. For some days I I mourned and I fasted, And I prayed before the God of heaven. And then I said, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly toward you. We have not obeyed the commands, the decrees and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instructions you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands... Then even your exiled people um, are at the, if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there, and I will bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people, whom you redeem by your great strength and your mighty hand. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. And I was cupbearer to the king. So I'm going to start in verse 11, and then we're going to work our way back a little bit. This man, in verse 11, is King Artaxerxes. He is the king of Persia. Now, you see a relief on screen, and most likely, this is actually Darius the Great. 
But it shows us the pomp and the circumstance of the Persian court. Uh, Artaxerxes was, by worldly metrics, a very important man. He had the ability to decide life or death right there in his court. Um, and, and there doesn't seem to be animosity between Artaxerxes and Nehemiah. As a matter of fact, Nehemiah is the cupbearer to the king. He is the one who, you know, tastes the wine to make sure there's no poison in it before it's presented to the king. If Nehemiah dies, no big deal. If Artaxerxes dies, big deal, right, from the Persian's perspective. Um, but it's important to keep this in mind. Even though there's no animosity between these two, um, Nehemiah's not in this relationship by his choice. Uh, he's a captive. He's trusted, but he has no ability to, to exercise any type of individual rights here in the king's court, but serving at the king's pleasure. But I, I love how Charles Fincham captures insights here into where Nehemiah's faith is. I just want you to notice this quote. In the eyes of Nehemiah, with his religious approach, Artaxerxes was just a man like any other man. The Lord of history makes the decisions, not Artaxerxes. I think that might be wise for us to consider today when we start trying to think about politics and religions Church, you tell me who's ultimately in charge. God is ultimately in charge. And I think Nehemiah knows that. So I want us to kind of go back a little bit and look again at some of these verses that we examined a few moments ago or stated a few moments ago. Let's examine them a little closer to see what the Lord reveals to us through this ancient story from Scripture. So we have the opening. Hanani, one of my brothers, this is one of Nehemiah's brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile, and also about Jerusalem. And they said those who survived uh, the exile and are back in the province, they're, they're in great trouble, Nehemiah. They're experiencing disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem, it's fallen to the ground. Its gates have been burned with fire. And when I heard these things, Nehemiah says, I sat down and I just wept for days. I, I just mourned. I cried out to God. I fasted and I prayed before the God of heaven. And so I want you to notice in this opening section here, what is Nehemiah's response? It's just to lay everything before God. He puts all of what he's feeling and experiencing, and he totally lays it before the Lord. And I want to challenge you, church. If there was ever a time for us, individually and collectively, to lay everything before God, surely it's now. I'll say more about our individual need to do that later, but for now, I just want to focus. I, I personally find a trajectory that I want to share with you. I find it troubling. I don't find it defeating, but I do find it troubling. From 2006 to 2016, about 58 churches of Christ. Church of Christ congregations closed every year. Before COVID, our Sunday a.m. attendance in Churches of Christ in the United States average was about 94 people. 54% of Churches of Christ average about 34 people in attendance on Sundays. And I want you to notice this next graph. If, and I've got if and big capital letters in my mind, underlined and bolded, okay? If. 
There are no changes in our current trajectory. What you see on screen is best case scenario. If there are no significant changes. Approximately 55% of people in churches of Christ will die or leave within the next 30 years. So we'll go from about 1.17 million down to about 650,000 by 2049. This next graph, if there are no changes in our current trajectory, and again, this is best case scenario, 57% of our churches will close their doors in the next 30 years. We're currently at about 12.2 congregations. We'll be at about 6.9 or so by 2049, again, if there are no changes. And I'm not talking about worship changes. I'm talking about just a change in trajectory. So you may be thinking, why didn't we look for an interim undertaker? Okay? So here's the thing. I believe that God is not finished with us yet. I believe that. I believe churches of Christ have something to offer. I believe that revival has happened before and it can happen again. Amen? I believe that can happen. However, our enemy is working non-stop to take our hearts captive. Some folks may transition to other churches, but we have many folks who are transitioning out completely. Um, And many of those are not returning. I do see some hope because COVID, I think, has caused a lot of people to process the meaning of, of, of what life is all about. And I think as a result, we do see some people who are finding Jesus. And I think many of those folks are finding Jesus within our fellowship. And that's a beautiful and that's a wonderful thing. But there is much work to do as we survey the landscape And I'll talk more about that next Sunday. For now, I believe there is something in these opening verses of Nehemiah that's worth imitating. Primarily, beginning with just laying everything before God. If we have any desire for revival, if we have any hope for reaching the unsaved, if we have any desire to restore our churches and our homes and our neighborhoods back to what Satan has so masterfully torn down, then I believe we have to be a people who are committed to laying everything before God. And I want to tell you, I think tears and prayer and fasting not only are, may not be our only first responses, but I think they're a great place to start. Nehemiah continues, verse 5, And then I said, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants the people of Israel. Something here that's so fascinating to me is Nehemiah's response. And you have to think about this. He could have responded any way. Hundreds, potentially thousands of different responses that he could have chosen. But his response is to be prayer 
full. And no, that's not a misprint. <laughs> I actually kind of created this phrase, okay, because it's, it's, it's what I see here. Nehemiah wept, and he fasted, and he prayed. We don't know, based on the first four verses, we don't know what he prayed. Uh, but I, I think it is safe for us to infer that many of his prayers were probably groans. Uh, maybe whispers, just ripples from the, the pain that he feels on behalf of his people and the God that he loves. And these, these groans and these whispers over time, they actually begin to create some clarity in his mind as he moves from confusion to conviction. He moves from pain to a plan. He moves from brokenness to boldness. Does that sound like a journey worth being on? Boy, I hope so. He prays day and night to the great and awesome God of covenant love. And I want you to notice this. He asks nothing for himself with one exception, that God will hear him. God will hear his prayers. That's all he asks for. After that, his prayers immediately transition to other people. Do you see what happens here? Day and night, Nehemiah prays for others. I just want you to think about that. How how might that impact our interactions with one another if we prayed for others? And the only thing that we ask for ourselves is that God hears and honors our prayers. You're at a unique time as a church. Uh, I know this has always been a praying church. I don't have any doubt in my mind that that's been the case for many decades now. But you're at this wonderful place where you are being called by your shepherds to intentionally and purposefully engage in in focused, uh, specific prayer for this, not just this interim season, but what this interim season has the capacity to yield. So many of you this morning saw these uh, little 10 to 4 cards. Any Dr. Pepper fans in the room, by the way? Anybody like Dr. Pepper? Okay. So if you don't know what the whole 10 to 4 thing is, just Google it. Uh, But there's a method behind the madness. And uh, Dave, along with several other folks who are part of the search team and some other individuals in the, in the congregation that he's working with, uh, created this little card. There's an entire explanation in your bulletin. So if you haven't read, please take your bulletin out uh, and look on page three. And there's a very detailed overview of what these cards are about. You can pick this up back at the Welcome Center along with some frequently asked questions about the search process. I saw those laying out there this morning. But the, the, the goal is to, to be people who pray without ceasing in this interim season. And so at, at 10 o'clock, everyone's just asked to pause and pray and focus on the, the past. You know, we're here because of the efforts of the saints who have gone on before and laid that great foundation of faith. At 2 o'clock, think about the present. Pray for your shepherds and the search team and teachers and parents and, and members of this body. And at 4 o'clock, pause and just pray about the future. God already knows what's in store for this church, but we want to discern that through prayer and fasting. And so, uh, take this maybe and and put it on your uh, uh, put it on your fridge or on your dressing table. 
Uh, put it on the dashboard of your car, not over the speedometer, uh, please. But um, when you pull up to a traffic, I, I want to tell you guys how awesome God is. When you pull up to a traffic light, just pray. And you want to know what's so cool? The person behind you will let you know when it's time to say amen. Isn't that awesome? Isn't that awesome how God works? So it's a wonderful season that we're entering in. And, and Nehemiah models beautifully here what it's like to be people who, who just, when we, when we are encountered with, with difficulties and, and times of great transition, what do we do? How do we respond? How do we react? We go to our knees before our Lord. We lay everything before Him. We become prayerful in our lives Nehemiah continues, I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you, Lord. We've acted wickedly towards you. We've not obeyed the commands. We've not paid attention to the decrees and the laws that you gave Moses. And Lord, he, he speaks here then to, the, to the, the promises that God has already made. He says, remember the instructions you gave, Lord, to Moses. If you're unfaithful, I'm going to scatter you. But if you return to me, I'm going to restore you to that place of dwelling that I've chosen for my name. These are your servants, your people you've redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. I love not only is Nehemiah's response prayerful, but it's also confession all. And yes, I realize that confession all is not a word. It's probably not even grammatically correct, but still I like it. Nehemiah doesn't look for, nor does he offer any excuses. He doesn't rush into solutions without first acknowledging his part in what got them to where they are. He prays prophetically on behalf of his people, preparing the way for revival that we're going to study a few weeks from now. In the midst of brokenness, being confession all, it's, it's unquestionably the right move. Otherwise, here's what happens. Our secrets begin to take root. Ultimately, a canopy is built over our hearts, and there's this dark veil, and it it blots out the light of God's Word. Nehemiah knew that that had happened to the people of God, and so he's convicted through his tears and through fasting and through praying of a need to add confession to the mix. So we see a man who is prayerful. We see a man who confesses all. The text continues, Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this, your servant, and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. And he says, I was cupbearer to the king. Now, I've got another word here. Nehemiah's response is what I call person-able. And you may be thinking, okay, Greg, that's really enough with the cute phrases. Uh, what's going on here? Well, I want you to, I want you to note that it, it's important to understand a progression that unfolds in this story. Nehemiah begins, as we've stated several times, he begins with weeping and fasting and praying. And these spiritual disciplines, practicing these spiritual disciplines begins to solidify a night and day prayer vigil that opens the door to confession. And so now the man who has emptied himself, 
of self is now wide open. He's ready. He's willing. He's convicted to be used by God to fulfill the purposes of God. And he humbly and yet boldly asks for God's favor as he prepares to enter the court of Artaxerxes and make a request that could cost his station and possibly his life. But I want you to watch the person-able phenomenon that unfolds here. Just think about it as we reflect on these verses we just read. Nehemiah wants to be able, through the power of God, to be able, by the favor of the king, to be able to go to his people and make them able to restore that which the enemy, the same enemy who is led by the king he is about to go before, to be able to restore that which the enemy has destroyed. Have you ever met someone who is personable? Oh, she's so personable. Or, oh, he's such a personable guy. Okay, Nehemiah just took personable, person-able to a whole new level here, okay? Not only that, by equipping those around him to align with the will of God, his response sets the stage for faith that is action-able or actionable. And that's where you, it's where we are right now as a church. We're in the same spot. An opportunity to be prayerful. An opportunity to confess all. An opportunity to equip brothers and sisters in Christ to make faith actionable to the honor and glory of our Father in heaven. At the beginning of our lesson today, I ask you, have you ever been, have you ever been disappointed that kick-in-the-gut type of disappointment, that kind where you, you put your trust into someone and that individual just tears your heart out and the, and the pain is so overwhelming that you just sit and you just cry, possibly for several days, I ask, have you ever experienced that kind of disappointment? I also ask, have you ever had an expectation that had you on the edge of your seat and instead of getting the news you hoped for, you get the exact opposite, and you're so devastated that you can't even eat. I ask you, have you ever been part of something that at one time was solid and secure, and then the pronouns shifted from we to me, and you find yourself on your knees in prayer, crying out to God to raise up that which has been torn down? Have you ever been in a situation like that? Some of us may not have ever been in these situations or anything similar. But most of us have. And here's the deal. Many, including lots of people right here within this community, are in those types of situations right now. And that's why I'm calling us today to pray like never before. 
to confess what needs to be confessed, to mourn what needs to be mourned, and to trust Him who is able to take action. And in our case as a church, to go all out in the mighty and powerful name of Jesus as we live into this season of interim and beyond. Next Sunday, we begin describing the biblical, yet very practical way to do just that. And I hope as we've started this series that today's lesson has been a blessing to you. I I hope that you will invite neighbors and friends and family members and possibly co-workers to come and to experience the remainder of this series with us. I want you to know I will I want you to know I will never embarrass them. I don't embarrass people. I will do everything I can to welcome them and to love them well in the name of Jesus and I'm I'm pretty confident this church will be about the same thing. Church, we're going to share a song together at this time. And uh, Mike's given us a preview of uh, that song, Just As I Am. And uh, even as we sing these, these words, if you are at that place where you, you're, you are, you're, just, you're just broken, you need the cleansing, healing power of God, uh, you want to have all of your sins washed away, then we will baptize you in this place this morning joyfully, willingly, and, uh, and welcome you into the kingdom of God. Uh, perhaps you have prayers for forgiveness. Uh, perhaps you, you have a prayers for, for sickness or healing. Uh, perhaps you don't even know what you need to be praying about, but it's just something's not right. Well, this is a church full of experts on something's not right. Can I get an amen? But we know that Jesus makes all things right. And so there's no judgment in this place. We just want you to know that the love of Jesus is here, though, openly, willingly for anyone who will receive it. So if you want, a couple of shepherds will be down front. They'd love to put their arms around you physically, even as Jesus embraces you spiritually in this place today. Let's stand together. Let's sing.